So we tried to reach out, didn't receive a response, went out there to check on the tenant, and a half dozen of the uh, folks that lived in and around the neighborhood, not in homes, and were using all kinds of substances there, um, the, the trappings of which were laid all over the property. And, um, and so I, I found that the tenant had moved out and left the door open and, and essentially invited the entire neighborhood um, of, of addicts and, and you know, other folks to move into this property. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today, we are with Brent Riley. He is a managing member of Starling Properties. Really excited to have you here today, Brent. Um, we actually have a unique plan to go through this episode. But before we get into that, let's just jump into your craziest real estate story or experience that you've had thus far. Glad to, Tim. And, and it's a pleasure to be here today. So my craziest story, um, of, of which there are many, um, but this is this kind of takes the cake. Uh, and, and it's relatively recent. So I had a tenant, um, good paying tenant, inherited tenant, which for the, the landlords that are listening in that have some experience, you know, collective groans um, with inherited tenants. Um, but I like to give them a fair shot. And uh, this tenant was doing well until all of a sudden one month, uh, I got a notice from my management company because this was one of my managed uh, properties that rent didn't come in. And so we tried to reach out, didn't receive a response, went out there to check on the tenant and found the front door wide open and a half dozen of the uh, folks that lived in and around the neighborhood, not in homes, um, had decided to move into the property and were using all kinds of substances there, um, the, the trappings of which were laid all over the property. And, um, and so I, I found that the tenant had moved out and left the door open and, and essentially invited the entire neighborhood um, of, of addicts and, and, you know, other folks to move into this property. Um, and, you know, if it had ended there, you know, we had gotten these folks cleared out and cleaned it up, it, it would have been fine. But I have a very trusted long-term plumber, um, one of my, my best contractors, who I, I sent over there just to check the pipes and make sure that everything was all right. He calls me up uh, about after being over there for three or four hours. And he's like, Brent, don't ever do that to me again, man. I'm like, what, what Rodney? What did I do? He says, I, I've been a plumber for 30 years. That made me throw up. Like, what made you throw up? Apparently, the at some point, they had run out of toilet paper. And instead of, you know, using, you know, getting more toilet paper or, or using some other means by which to clean themselves, they began using anything and everything you could find and just cramming it into the toilet. And then when that became full, they began using the tub. And my plumber had to dig through all of that to clear all of that out. And being the amazing plumber that he is, he persevered through all of this, got the entire thing cleaned up and fixed before he told me this, um, and then and then shows up with a with a bill uh, and is apologizing. I'm sorry, this is more expensive, man, but this was a bad one uh, for three hundred dollars, which what? I kindly uh, increased by about fifty percent. Yeah. Um, and said for pain and suffering. Yes. Um, <laughs> Holy cow. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a recent, uh, crazy experience, uh, that I had to deal with. Gosh, man. It's like, you could almost started an AA meeting right there in that apartment. You said, how many guys did you think there was guys and gals in that apartment? It was about a half dozen. We had, we had, uh, three that were there kind of currently, 
relaxing <laughs> when uh, we came in to do our inspection. But it was there was no way that three people in something less than a month had made the uh, created the issues that we had there in that property. So. Um, yeah, it, it was definitely a flop house for for a little while, and certainly the neighborhoods the neighbors were appreciative when I got everyone removed from there and and got it cleaned back up. No again. doubt, man. So you're giving a great example of what happens in real estate, and most people hearing this story would think, "Gosh, this is fraught with risk." If I buy in properties, and yet you're a person who hates risk. So can you take us in right away to? Like when you say you hate risk, what does that mean? Like describe like with feelings, words, what that means and how you would view something like this, buying properties that could have these types of scenarios as not risky. Yeah, of course. So I am so far against risk that when I started working professionally, the stock market was performing at like Standard & Poor's 500 was, was returning maybe three, three and a half percent a year. Um, and I didn't feel like, I felt like that was too risky to put my money into a mutual fund. And so instead I started paying down my own mortgage on, on my own residence. This was before I, I had a rental property. Um, that's how, how nervous at risk makes me. Um, before I really understood, you know, how 401ks operated, I realized that the match was a good thing. Um, so I'd go up to the match. I wouldn't put a penny over the match. Um, that's, that's how against it I was. And I recognized the value in rental properties, but I had also was a little bit gun shy of getting into them because I had friends that directly out of high school began wholesaling uh, and began acquiring every property that they could. And they were living off of their rents. They were spending deposits and then repairs would come in. They wouldn't have the funds to do the repairs. And I had more than one friend whose house of cards came tumbling down back in the day, uh, pre-recession, um, pre-2008, 2009 recession, um, when there were folks that were getting 100%, 110% um, loan to value on properties and trying to invest that way. Um, and so I was never open to that. And as long as that was how folks were investing in properties, I wasn't open to that. Um, and so when I was thrust into the world of investing in the back end of the 2008-2009 recession, I had strategies already in place. I didn't necessarily know what to do, but I knew quite a bit of what I did not want to do, um, what I had seen, uh, how, the, kind of the trials and tribulations of some of my friends and, and uh, other folks in the, in the investing world that I had seen. And so I started kind of building my model around that. Um, and then you know, it was a great time to be getting into this because we had you know, a number of resources and podcasts and websites and things that were just in their fledgling years or that would be starting within the next four to five years that would really supplement that knowledge um, to where now um, there's no real reason today to be, you know, purchasing one of those, you know, buy, get rich quick, you know, follow my 10 steps and I guarantee that you'll be a multimillionaire um, because there are podcasts like this one and some excellent websites and books and resources that everyone can go to. And so thanks to all of that, I've been comfortable enough to be able to build my portfolio up uh, to where it is today, uh, which is uh, 22 or 24 residential rental units um, and two uh, commercial buildings. Um, I would love to dive into 
the actual I mean you don't you don't have to say names, right? But you mentioned that you had some friends that were doing some real estate activities and they got hit really hard. Like let's see let's frame that. Like how hard were they hit? What happened to these people that caused the risk aversion? Of course. So um one of my friends who I actually invest with today um as an investment partner, but back when he first got into it, I remember he went to a course and then in the wake of that, he started going and looking for foreclosure properties, looking for um, distressed sellers, and just like any any wholesaler would, and reaching out to them. And, and he ended up acquiring right around, I think it was five or six properties. And the way he was acquiring these uh, was he would, he would get them locked up under contract, and then he would purchase them with essentially a 100% loan. And with a tenant in place, and he was counting on that tenant building up his bank account and being able to you know, maintain the property and pay the mortgage off of what those rents were. And what he was kind of failing to calculate in that instance was that a lot of these properties were not maintained. They were distressed. There was a reason that it was being foreclosed on. There was a reason that um, the, the current property owner was was selling this property and because he didn't have those cash reserves the rents were insufficient to be able to handle the repairs um, or were barely sufficient to be able to to manage the repairs and then as happens in life um, he experienced some personal struggles and had to begin living off of some of his rents and as soon as that happened one property has some repairs that come in um, he barely has enough to get those done to be able to keep it rented. Um, one tenant stops paying. He has to evict them. It takes a couple months. Then there's a turn, gets it re-rented, but just barely by the skin of his teeth. And it was just like one fire after another. And it was like stealing water from, from one place to dump it over here. And then that one would start blazing up again. And it was just chaos. And then what finally caused the house of cards to come tumbling down was when interest rates started to skyrocket and he had adjustable rate mortgages because the rates were very um you know attractive at the beginning um and they started to adjust and he started to he then had no money to do repairs on properties and then his tenants started moving out and then ultimately he ended up losing his own residence over it because you know he was reliant on these rents coming in and it, it was just kind of one thing after another. And, and so the, the lesson that that taught me, you know, first and foremost was um, over leverage, just because a bank will loan to you, that's, that's not, doesn't mean it's a good idea. And if a bank says they won't loan to you, that's probably a great indicator that there's something wrong with your deal and or your financial situation. And you might need to, you know, really, really look, you know, deeply at that. Uh, as to whether what you're doing is safe or not. And, you know, as we saw in this case and, and happened to a lot of folks around that 2008, 2009 area who lost, you know, their, their investment properties, um, being over leveraged, not having those cash reserves already in place, um, not having a good realistic budget set aside for repairs and things like that that might come up. Um, and then, you know, the cardinal sin of, of real estate uh, spending your deposits, you know, not keeping those deposits segmented off, um, making sure that you keep those there, uh, you know, just in case, you know, you have to pay out on those. Um, 
you know, it kind of all came together in a perfect storm, but really any one of those could sink somebody. And so uh, when I started building my own portfolio, I made sure that, that I implemented those kind of safeguards in it from the start. Um, and so, you know, the next kind of follow-up question, what am I doing? You know, what are my safeguards? Yes. Um, first and foremost, I don't leverage beyond 70%. So when I go to refinance, I do, I do employ the Burr method. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with that, the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat uh, method. Um, but when I purchase the property, I don't purchase a property that I don't already have the capital to be able to do the full renovation on. So right off the bat, I know that I have the capital to be able to repair everything that's damaged, fix anything that's not uh, up to standards. Um, and, you know, that way I, I know that I have equity in that property right off the bat. So if I did have to cash out of it, I'd be able to do that. And that um, I lessen that likelihood that I'm going to get hit with multiple high cap rate expenses all at once and, and create, you know, financial distress for myself. I mean, then when I go to refinance, of course, refinancing at 70% um, loan to value gives me a, yet another buffer that even if there's a market correction, the odds of there being a market correction, especially in the Midwest where I invest, um, I've never seen it happen before. Not saying that it can't happen, but once again, that's another safeguard that I have in place there um, where I, I have the ability to exit. You know, I have multiple exit strategies from my property without any fear of foreclosure, of having to dump all my properties and, and essentially lose everything or putting my, my, you know, my home and, you know, my own accounts at risk. Absolutely love this. What I'd like to do is I'd like to dive deep into, I mean, and thank you for giving us the safeguards. I'd like to dive deep into the psychology, maybe even philosophy of risk. Like you've pointed to at the beginning of this episode, all of these gurus out there that seem to have very little risk awareness or concern as they push all of the, these, you know, people into potentially their own destruction. And so having you on being a contrarian voice, what probably shouldn't be contrarian, what should be very standard wisdom, like we're, we're super thankful that you're kind of bringing, you know, the conversation back to maybe a healthy middle. Hey, you are investing, you're growing a great portfolio, but you're doing it in a way where your chance of losing that portfolio is very close to zero. So if you'll take us in to when you first started seeing your friends do the thing, did it discourage you from buying altogether? How did you work psychologically through the risk to come to the parameters that you have? Yeah, so that first step, that one that everyone finds so, so difficult, um, I was thrust into it. Uh, I owned a house in Northern Virginia in one of the, the, the hottest real estate markets in the country. Um, at the time, it was Northern Virginia, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York City, I think were the, by far the top real estate markets. And I was moving out to Northern Virginia. I was very excited to get a uh, what they call a rambler out there, which would be a, a ranch in most of the rest of the, the country. Um, just a very traditional 1,200 square foot, three bed, one and a half bath, nothing fancy. Um, and I was ecstatic to get it for, I think, two hundred and twenty dollars or $230,000. And um, I was even more ecstatic when I saw the neighbor house, which was, I think, 200 square feet less than mine, um, when it sold a couple of years later for, I think it was two hundred and eighty, two hundred and eighty-five thousand. dollars $285,000. Patted myself on the back. What an amazing investment I'd made, you know, in my future purchasing a home. 
Um, and then the bottom fell out of the market. And I remember getting a, an assessment, uh, tax assessment in the mail and it, and it saying that my home's value had been adjusted to $120,000 and my jaw dropped. I'm like, okay, now I know that these tax assessments are, are not known for being accurate, but there is a, a cui bono there for the county to be motivated to keep my property value high. So if they're dropping it this much, what in the world just happened? And it seemingly happened in that market overnight. There weren't news articles about it. There was nothing going on. All of a sudden I got this valuation. Whoa, whoa, what happened? And then there were news articles and then there was recession. And then there was all these talks. And I, I come from a family of investors and not necessarily in real estate, but in, in various things. When they see opportunity, they understand those basic principles of investment. Um, when the market's down, you definitely don't sell. If you can buy, that's when you buy. You see opportunity in, in the kind of issues that we're experiencing right now in the market. Um, for some folks, it, it creates fear. In other folks, you know, it, there's, there's definitely opportunity there. And it's all about seeing that. And I saw the opportunity rampant foreclosures in my area. Um, the, the rental market was still good. And so I said, you know what, we can afford to buy another house. Let's look for a really, really nice foreclosure, like the nicest foreclosure we can find and afford and just get that. We'll rent out our primary home and we'll just ride this storm out because I, I don't think this is going to be a long drawn out process. And fortunately it, it did work out. I was able to find a nice, a really nice foreclosure. Um, be able to, I was able to rent my house very easily and I was able to ride out the storm. And at the end of it, when I moved uh, back to Ohio, um, I, I did not make a bunch of money off of it, but I did a little bit better than breaking even, which compared to other folks that were in the Northern Virginia area, um, I think here we are, you know, right now they're, they're just getting the values up or cresting over where they were at that peak in 2008, 2009. So certainly the, the, the movements that I did then saved me a lot of headache and heartache, and they provided me with that capital that I had to be able to inject when I moved out here to the Midwest into more investments and also kind of taught me um, some things about investing so that when I came out here, I was, I was ready to rock. And that was right around 2014, 2015 uh, that I came back uh, to the Midwest and, and started ramping up my investment efforts. I love how you talk about how risk averse you are. And then you talk about your first property here that you bought, the market tanks, and then you go buy another one, right? So, I mean, that is obviously a contrarian thought to a lot of people. The market's going down. It's a terrible time to buy. But as everybody should know, when everybody else is running away, that's when you should be running towards it. So the fact that you made that connection with your risk aversion is is amazing. So props to you on that because you made the right decision. You mentioned you had some investors in your family. And I'm sure they influenced that decision. So can we talk about what they're investing in and how that did influence your decision? Because I'd be amazed if there weren't any parallels. Yeah, so um, the best parallel that I can provide, and I, I had no shortage of sour grapes that I felt like I was never gonna get this opportunity in my lifetime. So my grandfather, um, World War II veteran, cautious saver, he always took his family down to the panhandle of Florida for vacations as the kids were growing up, my, my father and my aunt. 
And there was this, this little strip uh, called Okaloosa Island, which was owned by either the Air Force or the Navy at the time, um, right in the Destin area, um, like right in between Destin and Pensacola. And they decided to sell off a small strip of this to anybody who wanted to, um, to, to private investors to build condos or whatever they wanted with very, very strict regulations. And then they said, We're, we will sell no more of this island. And so it was this perfect little block there that was not going to be further developed. There were limits on how big they could make the condos. And my grandfather, going down there for vacation every single year, saw that this was happening, recognized the value in that. And he put down deposit on, I think it was two or three of the units in one of the first condo buildings that were being built on that island. Just because he knew it was Sugar White Sands, this gorgeous place to take a family on vacation. He knew that without a doubt, it was a safe investment for him um, to put, and he put all of his money onto it. Um, so he paid the deposits, he paid the down payments on these mortgages, and the building was built. He started, they started leasing them out, and essentially instantly they, they doubled or tripled in value um, because at that point it's an established investment and everyone on the strip saw the value. And so he sold two of them, paid off the first one, and now he owned a condo in one of the best real, you know, pieces of real estate in, you know, the Gulf Coast, um, free and clear. And so just that savviness, just him recognizing, you know, hey, I'm in the right place at the right time. I need to move on this right now. Um, it keeps your, my eyes open. And when the market tanked, it, that light bulb went off. Like, this is my moment, similar to what my grandfather went through. This is my moment to be able to do something right here, right now that other people are going to look at and say, dang, if only I had been there at that time and doing this thing and thinking that thought. Um, so yeah, certainly you hit the nail on the head. It was definitely an inspiration and definitely one of those life lessons growing up that um, I was able to, fortunately, had internalized and was able to quickly apply. So exposure to success was obviously helpful in maybe painting some color around your vision of the investments, making it a little bit more positive, right? As risk tends, like people who don't want risk tend to look at the negative side of things. You, your first investment goes upside down very, very quickly. Can you describe the feelings and the emotions that you have? Obviously discovering that, like, and then... You know, it appears to me just from asking the questions that, you know, you were, you anchored the principles of investing as, as your rock. So can you describe the feelings and then how you were able to navigate around that to, to make those decisions? Yeah, of course. So first off is, and this is a, a personality trait that a lot of investors have that I found, um, there's definitely a kinship between us. And that is this, this concept of, it's not if I can do it, it's how can I do it, right? And so when we experience some hardship, like taking that first step might be really, really nervous, right? But once you do it, well, then failure is no longer an option. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to fail at this. So it's not a matter of like, oh my gosh, this thing's happening around me. I'm a victim to this situation. I can't possibly, that doesn't even come into, I think, most people's minds. And if it does, chase it away because you're in this, whether you like it or not, you're in this. Now let's figure out how to make this thing work. And so I think that's kind of a very important philosophical principle to have present there. When you experience some adversity, like 
your first investment. You've made this big leap, you know, you've purchased your first home, you know, and things aren't going the way that you want them to. All right, well, you know, what is it? What is that that one thing that that reduces risk? It's knowledge. If I have too much risk, if I'm too nervous, I need to go study. I need to go talk to other people that are doing this thing. I need to talk to people that are smarter than me. I need to talk to people that are doing things differently than me until I figure out what is a path or some paths to get out of here. And then you execute. And so that was really something that was comforting and cathartic there because it is nerve wracking. I mean, I, you know, watching all of your hopes and dreams kind of, you know, go up in smoke, um, it can be very discouraging. And I, I think what kind of helped me to ride through that storm and what helps a lot of, of investors, the successful investors that I know, because I think all of us have experienced some hardship. I haven't experienced, I haven't talked to any investor that's been doing it for over 10 years that doesn't have some horror stories of losing frequently a lot more money than I've lost over the years. And then they persevered through and those life lessons that they learned. I mean, I learned a lot more about riding my bike from wrecking it than I ever did riding successfully, you know? And um, coincidentally, you know, my, my, I have a five-year-old and he had the day off of school today. So we went uh, and went mountain biking um, and he's just now getting into it. And I'm, I'm imparting those same lessons on him. Every time he wrecks, I'm like, that's a lesson you'll carry with you for the rest of your life, you know, and, and really investing is, is the same way. So once I think you're able to find that path out and through and you get that win in the wake of a loss, then you kind of have the bug, right? Like you at least have like a recipe for success here. Like, okay, um, we talk a lot about tools in the toolbox. I now have a tool in my toolbox that, you know, if this doesn't work, I can do that. And then over time, you have more problems and you find more solutions and you have more tools for your toolbox. And that's when you really realize that those failures and those hiccups and those tripping points, um, they're not impeding your ability to grow they are your mechanism for growth. And while they hurt, you know, it's not going to, falling off the bike is always going to hurt. Um, that's what separates those that get to be really, really good at this from those that, you know, kind of stall out. Absolutely. 100%. I love your mindset there. And, and the way you just articulated it was actually really well-spoken. So thank you for that. Um, I would love to get into this. Like, you're talking about the failures. You're learning way more from the failure than you ever would any success. And that is so true. Like, I remember my failures and I remember exactly why I failed. Um, do you have any specific examples for this? Like, what lessons did yeah. you learn so that you wouldn't yeah, do it absolutely. again? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I'll provide an example of one um, that, you know, was a, was, a, was a failure, was a hardship that in the wake of I learned my lessons and, um, you know, it's made me definitely very stronger. And then um, I'll talk about one that is kind of my current struggle that I'm, I'm currently trying to work through and trying to figure out the solution to. So um, one, the, the kind of the bane of my existence here, and this is similar to a lot of, of other investors in my area, um, is contractors, uh, specifically general contractors, those handymen, the, the, the person that's going to do your turns, the person that's going to do drywall repair for you, that's going to do a paint touch up, the person that's going to lay luxury vinyl plank flooring, swap out a faucet, swap out a toilet. Um, the, the, you know, you need somebody with skills, you need somebody with attention to detail, um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a journeyman or a master, you know, tradesman to be able to do these things. We have an incredible lack of skilled 
folks in just kind of this general handyman ilk. And we have an incredible glut of folks that claim that they can do everything and anything. And it turns out they have serious substance abuse problems that they might be good for a job. And then suddenly they have some cash in their pocket and that that old, you know, habit comes comes back again. And then they're showing up to jobs intoxicated or disappearing for a week. And um, and so this was something that was kind of coming to a head over, I'd say, the past six or seven years, getting increasingly um, worse and worse and worse. And ultimately, I had a couple of contractors um, where despite us having a clear understanding of what we were doing, um, started to go off the rails. And so for, for one of them, um, I had not kept, you know, a lot of our communications were verbal. We had an initial contract. Um, it was not a great contract. A lot of our, our, you know, agreements and, and changes over the course of it, which are normal and natural were agreed to verbally. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody right now, I'm a man of my word. Uh, it's a it's a big big deal to me that if if we if we agree on something verbally like that is it but that is not how the rest of the world works and if people might be, get offended and say well, I'm good to my word I promise I'm good to my word do not trust it do not trust it and, and if they're offended too bad like it's it you know I tell them I'm good to my word too but you know what it's a lot better if it's in writing because then there's no chance for for confusion. And so one very recently where um, I, I was I was kind of smacked around by it, but it also reinforced that principle that I need to not I need to not become lax on this. I need to become even more robust in my documentation. Uh, I had a general contractor um, handyman who was rehabbing a an office building for me. And we had negotiated a rate to lay the luxury vinyl plank flooring in this building. And he had decided that he didn't want to lay it himself. He had hired a subcontractor. I'm fine with that. As long as you manage your subcontractor, you have to be on the job site, make sure that what they're doing is to standard and you're responsible for paying them. I'm going to pay you based upon how much the job is done. Well, he decided to, to stop paying his, his, his uh, subcontractor. And because I had it very well defined in the contract, I was paying this much based upon how much of the work that was done. Um, I was able to put the brakes on things before it got completely out of hand. Now, unfortunately, the, the subcontractor decided to show up to the building um, because I refused to pay the general contractor any more money. He had run out of funds. He was living off of the payments that I had made him and had no funds to pay his subcontractor. The subcontractor showed up with a circular saw and started cutting up my brand new laid luxury vinyl plank flooring. Um, so ultimately, I, uh, you know, of course, had to call the police and go out there and um, we had to take out charges on the, the, the disgruntled subcontractor. I felt badly for him. Um, he didn't get paid. He was just taking it out on the wrong person, unfortunately. Um, and I went back to the, the you know, person who put himself in a general contractor role and informed him like, Man, I paid you to do the job. You hired this other guy. He did this. Um, you're going to fix this, you know. And you know he hemmed and hawed and finally got it fixed. And then you know I, I fired him and, and had to hire someone else to do the job. But if I had not kept good, clear documentation of what our terms were and what our arrangements were, that could have very, very quickly turned into 
this this he said he said situation where um, it's very ambiguous as to who's responsible for what and what expectations were and you know perhaps I would have been stuck holding the bag with this disgruntled person who's damaging you know this flooring that they legitimately laid and should have been paid for at my property. Um, so th that's that's kind of um, I know I said I was going to give two examples, but that's kind of rolling it all into one, right? Um, so previous experiences of being taken advantage of by contractors and and having to go to court and and all kinds of things just because of you know documentation and and things like that going awry led to me being able to be in a powerful position when everything went awry and um, I was able to to repair it fairly easily. Um, the same couldn't be said for my general contractor who had no cash, had people angry at him, had really ruined a lot of his reputation. Um, you know, but at least in my position, um, I was, I was safe and secure. So you own 20, is it 22 single family houses and a couple commercial buildings? It's 22 rental units. I have no single oh, cool. family. They are all duplexes or four units. Um, and then I have two commercial buildings. Love it. And so that's a decent sized portfolio. And with some of the parameters you mentioned in the beginning, I'm assuming your cash flow amongst your entire portfolio is pretty good. If you're not at a level where you could retire, you're probably not far off. And so on this show, we really move in and talk about freedom. So you're solving mm -hmm. these problems with the subcontractors, which is in contractors, which is amazing, right? Better documentation. What is your mindset on life moving forward? Do you see yourself now that your cash flow is increasing, dealing less and less with this? Do you see yourself hiring a person to take care of this for you? What's your uh, vision from a business perspective as you continue to grow your portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, um, when I started this off, I was very hands-on. I was I had no property manager in place. I was doing almost all of my repairs and turns myself. But this is when I had um, four, six units. Um, when I got closer to ten, was when I started subbing out most of my rehab and repair uh, stuff. When I got up to twelve, was when I hired my property manager. Um, just to kind of try to ease into things. Cause like I said, I'm risk averse. So I, I always dip my toe in and then I see if I want to stick, stick my foot in and then, you know, we're going to ease in here. Um, so, so I, I, the problem is, is I have a tendency to be a control freak as a lot of investors are. And because I can do all of these things and I recognize that most folks are not going to necessarily do a turn to the standards that I would do a turn. You know, I'm in there. This is my property. I'm going to be obsessive about it. Um, I understand that most property managers are not going to manage my property the way that I would. Um, they're not going to be as responsive when a tenant reaches out with an issue. They're not going to be as responsive when they're trying to fill a vacancy. Um, but unfortunately, um, I recognize this is the path that I have to go. If I want to continue to scale, I, I do. Ha I am seeking financial freedom and independence. I, I have a goal date in mind. I, I want to be financially independent and able to, if I want to, retire from my day job at 50. So I've got eight years um, to, to get to that point, and I want to triple my portfolio by then. Um, for me, 
Um, if for those that are, are investors in, in Reddit groups and things like that, there's a term called fat fire. And while retiring at 50 is not necessarily early, um, I do want to have enough funds that I'm not, I'm not strapped for cash and I'm not worried about things. And so that's kind of my drop dead date where, you know, my goal in a perfect world, if the market supports it, you know, is that's where I would like to be. Um, so certainly financial freedom is, is, is a big goal of mine as well. Um, with, with, you know, within building my portfolio. Um, so just to kind of redirect back on your question, I don't know if I, if I answered it quite appropriately or not. I, I, I veered off a little bit there. For sure. So, I mean, you're, we're talking about kind of scaling and growing now. You mentioned being a little bit of a control freak, which I could relate to. Um, <laughs> but sometimes there's a point where you need to kind of let go of control a little bit. And this is actually something you brought up on the pre-show. And you said you were open to being vulnerable about. You said you mentioned that um, you've had troubles trying to systematize and automate your investments. And you'd be open to discussing that and getting some feedback from us. So in yeah, order to do that... Um, we'd love to assist you, but in order to do that, if you could give us a little bit more context and a little bit more detail into the actual struggles that you're having. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. So first and foremost, um, we'll start with, with general contractor. Swapping out a general contractor, your, your basic handyman, every six months to one year is, is really, really difficult. <laughs> if that's just going to be the way that it is, then... That's the way that it is. We'll work in our we'll work in a system to planning on replacing a, a, a general contractor every six months to a year. I would prefer not to have to do that. Um, the next issue that I'm having with with regards to building out systems is my property management. Um, I mentioned that I dipped my toe in there to see if I wanted to stick the rest of my foot in. So I gave this property manager um, eight of my rental units. All of them duplexes. They were all, um, all but one of them were already rehabbed and cash flowing and tenants in place. I gave them a chance with, with placing tenants. My 